Welcome to When Things Go Wrong, a show about what to do when things you expect to go just fine simply don't. Often it has nothing to do with what you did or what you didn't do, and yet it affects you in profound ways. I'm your host, Frank Sapovitz. I've spent more than 30 years creating, managing, and producing major sports and entertainment events. And on this show, we'll meet fascinating people from all walks of life and business who had to manage difficult problems, often under tremendous pressure. You'll hear from pros who will show us how they have avoided disaster or managed a crisis when one happened anyway. Today's guest on When Things Go Wrong is an accomplished leader in North American sports, Brian Burke. Berkey, as he's known to his friends, and I'm fortunate to count myself as one of them, has enjoyed a remarkable career journey as a team and league executive with the National Hockey League. He earned a Stanley Cup ring as the general manager of the Anaheim Ducks in 2007 and also served as GM for the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Vancouver Canucks, and the Hartford Whalers, as well as for the U.S. national men's hockey team for the 2010 Winter Olympics. He also served as Executive Vice President of Hockey Operations for the NHL League office in New York. Berkey was most recently an on-air hockey analyst for Rogers Media, Sportsnet, and Hockey Night in Canada, before taking on his current role as the President of Hockey Operations for the Pittsburgh Penguins. His new book, Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey, written in collaboration with sports journalist Stephen Brunt, is a national bestseller in Canada. But wherever you live, my friends, it is an incredible behind-the-scenes read of a truly storied life in hockey. Here's my conversation with Brian Burke. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. You know, we live in the in the professional sports business, and it's one of those real-time arenas where something goes wrong on the ice, in the locker room, or in the front office all the time. And when it does, it's not a secret for very long, is it? No, almost almost everyone has an opinion about what, you know, whose fault it was or whose fault it is. Does anyone ever get used to that scrutiny and pressure? Well, I don't think I think you have to accept it. It's part of the job and these jobs. You know, there's a lot of job hazards involved, like getting fired. And if you want to be a GM, you're probably going to have to move a couple of times. But the jobs pay well and they're fun. And so to me, a big part of it, and that's why I was interested when you asked me to do the podcast is, it's a series of, I tell people, running a team is like driving on a freeway. And you come to the first interchange and you have a choice, get off or keep going. These decisions come at you daily, and some of them aren't pleasant. Well, so let's talk a, a little bit about your time as a general manager. Uh, you're upstairs in a booth on the press box level during a game, looking down at the action on the ice. I've seen you in action there. R regardless of what you and your coaching staff has planned, once the puck is dropped, you have really no impact on what's unfolding down there in real time. That, that's got to be both incredibly exciting and sometimes excruciatingly frustrating. Yeah, it depends on your teams go through cycles, right? You crawl, then you walk, then you run, then you sprint. There's really only three, four, five teams that are sprinting in any league at any one time that legitimately have a chance of winning a championship. And so your patience level and your frustration level vary with where your team is. When your team's sprinting and you're in first place and you got a legitimate shot at a title, the games are fun. I remember the year we won the Cup in Anaheim, we didn't lose in regulation until game 16. So the first 16 games we, we recorded regulation wins and so or got it to overtime. 
And so to me, uh, that was the most fun year and the most stress-free year for me watching. But then when your team's, you know, struggling to win games, it's really frustrating to watch. So so take us behind the scenes a little bit, though. You're you're up there in the press box looking over. Uh, are you keeping it to yourself or are you letting it out a little bit? No, what happens is, I mean, I, I think I – I think they told me after I left Vancouver that I punched three holes in the drywall behind the, the GM box. <laughs> so you're not holding it in. Um, I would always sit with my assistant GM and usually one or two other guys. So a lot of foul language, a lot of, you know, like, because really reliable players still make mistakes in games. And your you're first thing to do is shout out, you know, Jesus Murphy. And only oh, it's a little about that family oriented. And so to me, um, and a few times we would let injured players sit with us, and, and they were very uncomfortable by the end of the game. They were like, I'm not sitting up here again. If you talk about me like that, like you just talked about all those guys. Uh, but it's it's tough, but it depends on the stage that your team is at. If you're winning three out of four games, guess what? The games are fun. After a loss, and one of those really frustrating times <laughs> looking down on the ice from the press box, and it, I know you don't keep things to yourself, Uh Losses on a hockey team, and this is as true in business as it is in sports when success is elusive. That can kill morale and, it can, and can kill teamwork and it can breed more losses. How, how do you keep that from happening or how do, how do you turn the tide on something like that? Well, first off, you, right after the game, we're going to meet with a coach. And sometimes he'll want you to talk to a player. Say a player is going through a really rough stretch and the, the coach thinks that it might help if he sits down with you. Um but in general, no, just talk to the coach. I always worried more about how we played than the results of that night. Some nights you're going to play a really good game and lose to a better team, and I can live with that. I just focused on how we played with the personnel we had. But I think it's very important, critical, in fact, that the GM be, so, be seen as positive by the team when they're struggling. In other words, the next day I'd go in before practice. I'd be there as when the players started to come in. So – Players start to get there at 9, 9.30. I'd be there at 8.30 having a coffee. And then as they come in one by one, hey, you know, you did a couple really good things last night. I know you made a couple mistakes too, but you threw that big hit in the second. Uh, you made a good uh, good assist in the third. Focus on the positives. And focus, you know, we're playing Detroit coming up next. We need a good effort. Just get keep the team. Just bring them up a little bit if you can. I think it's a critical part of a GM's job in contributing to Morales that you have to be a cheerleader sometimes. Yeah, even when the pressure is on you, right? I mean, you're you're feeling the the pain of the loss as well. I'm sure. Yeah, and and keep in mind the pressure on the GM in year one. There's probably very little pressure because they brought you in because someone failed. The expectations aren't high. Year two different. Year three, they're starting to look for some wins, and we've expanded to 32 teams starting next year. And you were in some of those meetings, Frank. I saw these owners shoot their arm out of their socket almost to, to raise their hand and vote for expansion and get that money. Not realizing now it's you're due to win a cup every 32 years right now. And I don't think many of our owners understand that math. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, the playoff system is such that almost half of the league and it will eventually be, I guess, half of the league is playing in the playoffs. Everybody who is, uh, who has missed the playoffs is kind of a, they're, they're not a factor anymore. And that's, I guess, when the general managers who are there for three or four years are starting to wonder where they're working the following season. Yeah, and that, and that just imagine the stress level, though. If you're in year four and you've missed the playoffs the last three years, like my five years in Toronto, 
we never made the playoffs. By the fifth year, there was quite a bit of heat. And so your enjoyment of those games and, and the stress level you have is very different than it was in year one where no one expected us to win. So that's part of it. The evolution of your team, where your team is, is part of it. But I think it's critical that I used to say to the staff when I when I go out for a meeting, and I come back. So I'm walking into the office midday. So I get into work before anyone else, as you know, Frank. I know that. <laughs> and I, I, I'm in at six and people all come in and say hi to me. But when I come in midday or I come up from practice, say I go and watch practice, walk in, I'm saying to myself, as I walk toward the door, you just won the lottery. You just won the lottery. You just won the lottery. So when I came through, they didn't see this grumpy Irishman that was all sour about the game the night before. They saw a guy who was happy and, hey, how's everyone doing? Let's go sell some tickets. And so I think it's really important. When things go wrong, one of the things that people look to is the attitude of the leader and the positivity of the leader. And I think it's critical that you not forget that. You might be dying inside, but you can't let people see that if you're the leader. Yeah, and, and I, I remember our time together at the National Hockey League. You, you, you live that. You absolutely take responsibility over that. So let, let's talk just more broadly. A, a career in professional sports is, is really worse than life at a goldfish bowl. I mean, not only is everything you do visible to the fans and to the media, of course, which I know you have a, a tremendous relationship with, Everyone has an opinion on how well you're swimming and in what direction you should be swimming in. How do you deal with with the criticism from the media, which also generates a perception among the fans, the readers, and also your customers, your ticket buyers, especially when things are not going the way you want them to go? Yeah, and you're you're right. It, it, there are certain a lot of what we do is the same for every business. We have inventory, we have HR, we have IT. So a company, a pro sports team is very much like uh, a life insurance company or any other business that sells printers. And so the difference is the public uh, scrutiny of what we do and the public criticism of what we do. But that's part of the territory. Like when you take the job, uh, the number one rule is you, you rule out the white noise, tune out the white noise. So the media criticism, the social media, and, and keep in mind, social media is really only the last 10, 15 years. Up till, up till then, it was just print media and electronic media. Now it's social media, which is very a powerful force. So number one rule, tune out the white noise. Like you can't, people who criticize your moves, they've never made a trade before. They don't know what it's like. They don't know the players involved sometimes. So tune out the white noise, do your job. And that means, that means you got to tune out some real personal criticism because some of these people they don't just criticize the move you make. They criticize your basic level of intelligence and competence. That's so true. If you don't, if you pay any attention to that at all, you're going to die from a heart attack from the stress of the job. So rule number one is tune out the white noise. Then number two, rule number two is work with the media guys that you can work with to get your message across, including, you know, like when I worked for Pat Quinn in Vancouver from 1987 to 1992, uh, I was on a live radio talk show every Wednesday night for an hour. We, had, we were the only team in pro sports that had a direct voice to our customers. And we could explain the trades and explain what our farm team was doing and explain why we didn't make this particular deal. It was a very powerful tool. So a lot of it is you have to be accessible. If you want your message to get out there, you've got to get it out there. And it's not good enough to tweet or whatever. You've got to do some live media. You've got to take calls. Um, and so that's rule number two is 
be aggressive about getting your message out, not necessarily the the part that the media want to criticize. And, and the other thing too is you have to admit when you make mistakes. Like I'm a big believer, and if you make a trade that goes south, you got to say that at some point. You got to say to people like, if you make a hundred trades, you're going to make ten bad ones, and that's a great ratio. If you're ninety ten, you're going to make ten bad ones, and at least one of those is going to be a big one, big star player, and you're going to screw it up. And you have to admit that because the fans already believe that. They're like, why can't he just admit that he made a bad deal? I'll give you an example. I signed Phil Kessel, traded two first-round picks. We thought we were a playoff team. We were very comfortable we were a playoff team. So that pick we would give up would be 17 to 20, maybe even lower, maybe 20 to 25. And at Christmas time, we were like eight games over 500. Everything looked good. And then we won it. We lost nine out of 11, I think, after Christmas and went on a horrible skid. It ended up being the second pick overall, which was uh, Tyler Sagan to Boston. So terrible trade. We overpaid horribly based on a miscalculation I made. Well, whenever anyone asks me about that trade, I say it was a trade that made sense when we did it, but because of the performance of our team, it ended up being a horrible overpayment. Now, Phil Kessel was really good for the Toronto Maple Leafs, but Tyler Sagan and Dougie Hamilton, that was the other player they took with the first rounder, both turned out to be real good players for the other team. So to me, you have to admit, that's rule number three, admit when you make a mistake. Yeah, Burke's Law is filled with principles. Um, and and I loved reading them. I loved digging into them. And and admitting your mistakes is is certainly one of them. The other was never lie. Right? You're never lie. Your authenticity gets destroyed if well, if you lie. Yeah, you can't lie. We we tell the players the same thing. Tell the coaches the same thing. You can say I'm not answering that question. You can get up and walk away. You can say no comment. But you can't lie. You can't say, uh, well, this is what happened when it didn't happen. So a big part of my message is accountability, which is admit when you made a mistake and don't lie. And I think it's a, a critical value that the media know. I don't like this guy. I don't like the way he's running this team, but I know he won't lie to me. That's a critical piece of trust that you have to have, even with the media that don't like you. Absolutely. And, and when you're a source of information... Uh, and a GM is always a source of information for uh, the media and, of course, for, for fans who want to know what's going on with the club that they follow. Uh, it's really important to be able to delineate between what you know for sure and what you think you know. Yeah, and I think and the fan, especially like I worked most of my adult professional career in Canada. The fans up here are very sophisticated on hockey and you've got to be careful what you say is, okay, this is what I heard or this is what I believe might be true rather than say this is what's going to happen tomorrow unless you're going to pull a trigger on the trade yourself and you know what's going to happen tomorrow. So I think that line has to be walked. But I think in general, common sense, like like what I'd say to the media is you can't evaluate this trade with a stopwatch. You need a calendar. We're not, we took a 20-year-old kid in this, in this deal. We're not going to know what he is for two to three more years. And then if it's a bad deal, rip me carve me i probably won't be here but if it's a bad deal three years from now you got to say that i get it but in the meantime don't tell me it's a bad deal till we see what this kid turns into and a lot of our trades involve guys that aren't in the league yet draft picks that are playing in the ncaa or playing in junior hockey that you're not going to see for a year two maybe three so that's you got to uh, massage that part of the message as well what one of my favorite quotes from burke's law is when you said you have to understand, I think you were talking to one of the owners that, that was 
uh, preparing to hire you, you have to understand that that when it comes to this hockey team, there's two hands on the steering wheel, and both of them are mine. But what what you follow that up with, which is which is exactly what you had said before, which is if something goes wrong, those were those were my hands on the steering wheel, and I own up to that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend this as a job interviewing technique for young people, but. <laughs> In all four of the GM, I was a GM of five teams. So I was the interim GM in Calgary. So I went in as president of hockey operations and replaced the current GM for, I don't know, six, seven months. So I have an NHL record that no one has been a GM of more teams than I have, which is five, which is a record that absolutely nobody ever wants to see. You want to stay in one place, watch your team grow. If you get the most I ever got was six years. So I did not manage up as well as I could have. And that's a, a part of it now. Twice the team got sold. Like in Vancouver, the team got sold. New guy wanted nothing to do with me. Same thing in Toronto. So two of them I can explain. But a couple of them I just plain flat out got fired. And in Toronto I got fired. So to me, if you're going to say that in a job interview, there's two hands on the steering wheel. And I put an expletive in the middle of that. There's two blank hands on the steering wheel, and they're both mine. Then you better be prepared to say, I'm, I'm accepting my pink slip with two hands. Yeah, so you're, you're right. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you, if you're going to go in that boldly, then you better deliver. That, well, that is something only a leader uh, or a potential leader of an organization should, should say. Yes, as a public service, we should mention that that is not something that you go into if, for an entry-level job or a management job, no, that's no. for sure. So I remember a story in the book, and, and actually I remember this from our days working together at the NHL, when media reports exploded about the alleged behavior of the U.S. men's hockey team at the Olympics in Nagano, Japan. But, but the reality was something very different from what the reports suggested. To share that story with us and, and how, you, how you handled the, the misinformation that was out there. Well, what happened was the U.S. team was eliminated in the in the Olympics. And so in, in the Olympics, normally, when your team is eliminated, they get you out of there right away. And I can tell you, having been involved in, in what, three Olympics, Nagano as working for the league, Vancouver as GM of Team USA, and then in Sochi as director of player personnel for Team USA. And once you're done, they want you out of there. They, they want the expense of feeding you and securing your safety, they want that all to go away. So it's funny, I remember in 2010, uh, the Slovakian team was eliminated, and while we were getting ready for our game, they were loading their stuff on a truck. They hadn't been out of the tournament for 10 minutes, and they were loading their stuff on a truck to get them out of the building. So what happened in Nagano was the players stayed over that night, and a couple of players had too much to drink. The tournament was over, and now we get a call the next morning. I get a call at the hotel from Commissioner Batman. And Bob Goodnow, uh, they, the guys acted up, the U.S. team acted up, and they trashed the dorm. So I brought my camera. I thought, well, if it's that bad, I'll take some pictures. And they took us into the dorm room, and, like, there were some broken chairs, but Paul Holmgren was an assistant coach with Team USA. He broke one of the chairs when he sat down on it the first night. Like, they were built for Japanese men. Paul Holmgren weighs 220 pounds. That chair snapped as soon as he sat down on it. So three or four chairs had already been broken, there was some clothing on the floor. The players didn't have room to bring back all the kit they got. So there were these beautiful Team USA jackets on the floor, which really disturbed me, seeing the U.S. Olympic logo on the floor. And there was like a puddle of water uh, from a fire extinguisher. And there were a couple little dings in the wall, little gouges in the wall where someone, maybe a chair leg, hit the wall. 
and I'm not exaggerating. I, I shot a roll of film, which I cannot find. This is, you know, two divorces and five moves later. I cannot find that roll of film. I hope I do find it someday because people would be shocked. I told Gary, I can clean this up in half an hour. Like there's a little puddle of water, some stuff on the floor. They didn't trash the dorm at all. But that's the story that got out. The plane went berserk and trashed the dorm. It was it was minor. There's very little damage and nothing that couldn't be cleaned up. But the story that got out was much bigger. And I hope I can find those. I remember Bob Goodnow and I looking at each other, and Bob said, "This is this is it. This is trashing a dorm." And Gary said to me, "He said if there's damage done, we're paying for it. You're going to find those players and make them pay for it." So I talked to all the players involved. Uh, I, I know exactly who was involved. I didn't divulge that in the book. I know exactly what happened. And it was really just frustrated. We lost. We're out of it. Have too much to drink. Uh, act up a little bit and then go to bed. But the real crime, I think, was the U.S. rooms, their dorm was right across the way from the Canadian team's dorm. And I'm guessing some of the Canadian players probably didn't sleep as well as they might have. That was their crime, probably being too noisy. But the dorm itself, we didn't find one player. There wasn't any damage to repair. Even and the, I, and I, by the way, even the Japanese hosts that were there with us agreed. Yeah, So and, and the league tried a little bit of damage control at that point, but the story was already out there. Yeah, and it's, look, the U.S. isn't popular internationally. It's that simple. They got a chance to, to run down a U.S. team. They're perceived as big bullies, and um, they took every advantage of that uh, and then some. And, and that's that's to be expected, I guess. But I can tell you, and, and Bob Goodnow can tell you, and Gary Bevan can tell you, the, the, the dorm wasn't trashed at all. And uh, again, we told our Japanese hosts, we'll pay for the damage. And even they agreed there's nothing to collect. You know, I think what's really important for people to recognize is that you didn't you didn't react when you got the phone call. You went and found out it. And that it always goes back to being able to authenticate the information that you're getting. You, you didn't fly off the handle on the phone. You grabbed your camera and you went down to the dorm. And that's how you found out what was really happening. Yeah, and that's the, the, the one lesson I would give if people watch this podcast, forget everything I said, but one thing would be don't overreact till you get the facts. Every crisis you're going to face, there's a factual basis around it. And you've got to get to the bottom of things before, like, I wasn't going to apologize for the U.S. team until I saw what, what it looked like. I wasn't going to scold the player. Like, if we'd seen a mess, we'd have gone after the players. We would have fined them. We would have named them. We would have said these are the culprits and they're being fined, you know, $10,000 each to pay for the damage. Like, we were prepared to react full spectrum, but we, yeah. got, we got the facts first. Yeah, you you had to. I, I'm going to say that you responded rather than reacted. And I think that's that was the yeah. that was the right path uh, to take. So you you, Berkey, you've had some amazing mentors in the hockey business. And I, I knew some of them as well. But you knew worked with them much more closely. Lou Lamarillo, who you played for at Providence College, uh, Pat Quinn, who was the general manager in, in Vancouver when you were his assistant GM. And I'm sure you learned a great deal about both on ice and, and the business side of the sport from these two guys who are just incredible legends in the hockey world. What, what kinds of lessons did you take from them about how to be best prepared for the unexpected and how to deal with things that go sideways, even when you are prepared? Yeah, and, and that's preparation is a key. You can you can do fire drills in your office, but when there's a fire, that you're going to find out if people understand what the preparation is. So, 
the preparation is really important, but I think the, the main thing I played for Lou and Lou was uh, like, just, I was just a green kid when I went there. I was 18 from Minnesota, didn't know anything. And I got there and I left four years later. I was a man, knew how to act, knew right from wrong. So it wasn't just the hockey that he developed in me. He developed what was right and wrong and how to act and how to speak and just life lessons that, that's, that stay with me to this day. I, I told Lou last week, I said, I owe you so much. I texted him that because we were texting about something else. Um, but think basic building blocks that people take for granted, but I see slipping away with young people. Be on time. Good manners. Do well in school. Like, don't just show up at class. Try and excel at, at schoolwork. Uh, polite to older people. Give up your seat on the bus, right? Just little basic things. And then the number one thing he taught me was, Everything is a competition. you got to be ready to compete. Every day in practice, every game, every test, everything in life is a competition. And the more intense you are and the more you compete, the more successful you'll be. And that's and, what – go ahead. Uh, and you're competing, you know, every single day, wh whether you're in the front office or whether you're on the ice. You're 100% right. Yeah, and if well, you don't see it, if you don't see your job as some kind of competition, someone's going to blow you away in there. Like, I don't mean – kill you. I mean, someone's going to blow right by you on the, on the organizational ladder. They do measure success in business. It's called results or profits or whatever the industry you're in. So yeah, it's a competition. Yeah. It doesn't mean being unpleasant or being aggressive. It means competing. And sometimes competing is about how you conduct yourself, just as you mentioned that, that Lou and, and Pat had taught you. So there's an old saying that, that you learn more from things that go wrong than things that go right. And, and I agree with that. But, it, but it's also true that it's way better to learn from things that go wrong for somebody else. So you shared a story with me recently about how you followed the problems and controversies that are occasionally encountered by other teams and even other sports to better prepare your team to handle a potential crisis before it happens. Why don't you share a little bit about that? Yeah, our philosophy was we're going to learn from every every uh, incident that occurs in professional sports. So if you get uh, a national football player arrested for assaulting his girlfriend, okay, that's our player. What will we do? What will we do? We do the fact-finding. We work with local police authority. We, we called in cops and said, all right, let's say this happened. What would be the problem? So we, we were – real-time ready to deal with that if it happened to us. Player gets a DUI, gambling scandal, you know, the things that seem to follow pro sports around. We were prepared every time there was one, all right, everyone in the boardroom, let's talk about what we would do. What would we do if this happened to us? So one of our players gets a DUI, what do we do? That's an increasingly rare thing. But you remember, Frank, there was a time when that was fairly common. And mm -hmm. so to me, we would try to apply a, a life lesson even when it wasn't our guy, uh, medical emergency, death in the family. How would we deal with that as an organization? And so we did dry runs on all of these, whether they involved our players or not. Now, touch wood, I had a, a really good record in terms of off-ice incidents with our players because we, we were pretty strict with the players saying, look, this is how you're expected to act here, and this is how you're going to act here, or you won't be here. And we tried to draft a certain kind of player. And this would be my advice to people. When I speak to groups in corporate Canada or the U.S., I, sp I think the biggest single flaw is they don't spend enough time on the hiring process. And then you have a termination, and then you got problems, and it costs money, and you got bad feelings. We spent so much time on researching the kids we drafted and traded for 
that we almost guaranteed we'd put someone in that room that could fit in. And that was a big part of our team's success. We started with really good raw material. Yeah, and you're 100% right. That's true in, in conference rooms as well as in the locker room. Uh, so when, when you were the general manager of the Vancouver Canucks, you made sure to spend every second weekend with your four kids. I know how important your family has been to you and, and what an incredible support system they've been. They lived back in Boston with their mom. And, and if you're in Vancouver and you're flying back to Boston, that's a heck of a long time to be in the air and essentially disconnected as you cross the continent. And, and you did that even during the hockey season and during the playoffs. So yeah. how did you, you and your team make sure that everything ran smoothly when you weren't immediately available? Well, I've been another lesson I say to people is make sure you got a good staff. I had an assistant GM my entire career. I had an assistant GM who I trusted absolutely and had full authority. So I'm, I'm up in Air Force One. The vice president of the team has full authority to make a trade, to deal with whatever, because I believed in those people and they knew my values and they knew my rules. Um, but I, you know, I, when I took the job in Vancouver, I promised my kids that I won't lose one day with you. I got every other weekend. I kept that schedule for 11 years, not just in Vancouver. I did it in Anaheim, too. The first in Vancouver was easy because Air Canada had a direct flight to Boston. Then it's, they discontinued that flight, and now you're either flying through Chicago, so you clear U.S. Customs in Vancouver, and then change terminals and switch airlines in O'Hare, or you fly to Toronto, and then you have to switch terminals, clear Customs, and go, and it really became a nightmare. But um, I, I put parenting ahead of my job. That's, I think, what you have to do. I think you can do both, just at, at different times. The, the kids took priority. Well, you, you definitely lived that value. Let, let's talk a little bit about how I, I know you watched the games from Boston um, when your when your team was playing. And of course, Boston's in the East Coast and uh, East uh, Eastern time zone. And you've got Vancouver in the Western time zone. So you're up pretty late. And I know you're a, an early riser and you get to the office before anybody else. So, you know, that was really tough on you physically. Well, you had to deal with a really tough issue from that distance. If I remember correctly, it was Marty McSorley and and, and uh, Don Brashear. Um, you had to deal with that incident in real time. Right. So what happened was I'm in Boston watching the game. It's late at night, and it's almost at the end of the game, and Marty McSorley high-sticked Don Brashear in the head in the temple, knocked him out, uh, big brawl ensued. And he was charged. Marty McSorley was charged. He shouldn't have been. They, they should have let the league take care of that. But he was charged with assault. And so that night. He was I charged with. I, I, want to be, I want to be clear. I'm sorry for interrupting. But he was charged with assault. That was a, that was a crime. And yeah. he was he was he was charged by the authorities yes. for a non-ice incident. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's funny the, the police probably wouldn't have gotten involved. But in British Columbia at that time, I don't know if it's still true. Any any civilian can call in an assault that they witnessed. So three fans that were at the game separately called it in. So now the police have to go. So the next day they call and they say, we want to talk to Donald Brashear, who was okay, thank God, great guy too. Uh, we want to talk to all the players who were involved. And I'm in Boston, it was Sunday with my kids. I'm flying back early the next morning. So I said to Steve Tamalini, I said, no one talks to any player until I'm there. I'll be there tomorrow. This can wait yes, overnight. Steve was your AGM. Yes. He was your assistant. He was one of them, yeah. 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 So the so the, the story gets out that Brian Burke is stonewalling the investigation. And I'm like, I'm not stonewalling anything, but I'm a trained lawyer and I'm gonna be there when my players talk to the police. So the next day 
I had already flown to Toronto, like at an early flight, like an 8 a.m. flight. And Bill Daly, who was the deputy GM or deputy commissioner of the league, I think back then he was just vice president of the league, but he called me and said, what's the holdup? I said, Bill, I am flying to Toronto. I'm actually getting on a plane in about 15 minutes. I'll be in Toronto in four and a half, or uh, Vancouver in four and a half hours, and I will deal with the police this afternoon. And he started laughing. He said, so that's the holdup until you can get back. He said, okay. So I set up, I moved practice back to like four o'clock in the afternoon. So you take that flight to Vancouver, it's four and a half hours, five hours from Toronto, but you pick up three hours on the time change. So mm -hmm. I went to the practice rink in Burnaby. I met with the two policemen. I said, all right, what would you like from us? And they said, well, we don't really know how to start it. So why don't you start with the players who were closest to Donald Brashear on the ice and see if anything was said or anything they call in Matt Cook and Matias Olin. No, I didn't hear anything from, from uh, Marty. And then I said, okay, the two linesmen, here are their phone numbers. They're both expecting your call. Here's, there was one referee back then, I think, still. So here's the referee. Uh, now, do you want statements from any, all of our players? Who are not, like, well, we'll help you any way we can. And so it, this controversy went away. But, the, the, again, it was find out what happened, get the right people in the room, and deal with it professionally. The police are entitled to ask any questions they want about an assault like that. What do you want to know? Do you want written statements from the players who were on the ice? Do you want to talk to our coach? It's like earlier in the game, Marty had 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 a fight with Donald, and Donald got the better of it. I think Marty figured he owed him a second fight, especially where uh, Donald Brashear collided with the goaltender in the game and hurt him. So I think they felt, the Bruins felt, he owed us a fight. And, uh, and or Marty felt that he, the Canucks owed him a fight. So this is all stuff I'm explaining to the policemen, saying you, you want to talk to anyone, get to the bottom of it. And they tried Marty, and he was convicted of, I think, simple assault and sentenced to, uh, I don't know, but it basically went away. But he never played again. That was the end of his career in the NHL, which is mm -hmm. two bags. He's a good guy. Yeah, they're both really good guys. I remember them both. So um, you also had a situation, if I remember correctly, between T Todd Bertuzzi and Steve Moore that was – that was really potentially a lot more scary. Yeah, that happened in our building. I was there for that. We had there's a bit of history there, and I won't bore everyone with. You can buy the book, by the way, if you want to hear the whole story. <laughs> by but all means. In a prior game, a player that played for Colorado, Steve Moore, high hit our captain. We thought it was a high hit. No penalty on the play. No discipline assessed by the league. We felt it was a, a cheap shot, a high hit. So we played them in Colorado the next game, and there was some, some banter, not banter. Uh, one of our players made a threat about uh, that you know, we're going to get Steve Moore or whatever, and we calmed all that down. We played them. Uh, it was an overtime tie, no, or an overtime game, no issues, no no fight. I think there was one fight, but nothing involving Steve Moore. And we came back to Vancouver, and Todd uh, chased Steve Moore down the ice and sucker punched him from behind. And he had uh, he broke two of the flanges on the vertebrae in his neck, uh, and and made a, a full recovery. But it looked bad at the time, and and it was it, gathering headlines all over the world. Like it was on CNN three and four times a day. And Gary called us in in Toronto for a hearing, and um, we checked into the hotel under the names Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble. My wake up call the next morning was Good morning, Mr. Rubble. It's seven o'clock. And so, uh, Welcome we, to Bedrock. Yes, and so uh, the league threw the threw the book at it. They suspended Todd for the rest of that year, plus playoffs. And we had a hundred points. See, we had a hundred point team, 
like we were a team that was expected to make some noise in the playoffs. And then he would have to petition for reinstatement. They fined the team a quarter of a million dollars, basically threw the book at us. And I think I, I felt the time at the time the penalties were egregious, but I think that's Gary Bettman. And I didn't really get to talk about him before as a mentor, but Gary's going to do whatever he has to do for the best of the good of the league. The fact that I work for him and we're friends, not a factor, not a factor. He's going to do what's best for the league. And it got the story off the front page. But uh, at the time we felt it was pretty harsh penalty for Todd and for us. So you made a career change in broad and went into broadcasting in 2018. And, and I will tell our listeners and I will tell anybody who wants to know, nobody knows the game of hockey better than Brian Burke, but, were there any surprises or mistakes you made when you first made that change? Things that you didn't know that you didn't know? Well, I made lots of mistakes. I mean, it's live TV. You're going to, you're going to make lots of mistakes. I mean, I've, uh, if I stumble early in a broadcast, I tend to keep stumbling. It's really bad sign for me. If in my first set of comments, I stumble because then I'm going to be down that road all night. Um, but I, we have good teachers. They have what Sportsnet does is they've got a, a media coach. He's excellent, uh, working with me right away. Right away, starting to like polish me up a little bit. But it's much like the hair and much like the suits. Like I wear a black suit and a white shirt and a dark tie. It's that, that's the outfit. And most of my, you know, most of my compatriots on the panel like flashy clothes and mo- more modern clothes. And I got this men in black look. But that's. What I did when I was a lawyer, that's what you wore. When I practiced law, you wore a black suit and a white shirt. So uh, I, I think I've tried not to polish up my delivery because I think people are used to it. You're going to hear what I think. You're going to hear what I want to say. And if it's not polished and it's not pretty, that's okay because that's how I talk. And I think people appreciate that. Yeah, that's that's your product. That's Brian Burke. You, know, you have a, a long and committed record of community service and activism in every city you've lived in, every city you've worked in. You're also a very powerful advocate for gay rights. Share, share that story with us, if you would. Well, my mom and dad, I'm one of 10 kids. My mom and dad raised us to, to believe in community service. So my mom was a nurse. They both passed on now. My mom was a nurse, and to donate blood, you have to be 18 in most states, but you can donate at 16 if your parents sign a waiver. We all started donating blood at 16. Like, I don't know how many gallons of blood I've donated over my life, but it'd be a scary number. And so we started young, um, and, and I took that to be an important part of my life. My children have all, that's all been passed down to them. But I thought with these pro athletes, you know, they've got such a platform, especially in Canada. You know, if, if Pavel Burry stands up and says this is important, people listen. Todd Bertuzzi says this is important, people listen. So I said to the players, you've got way more of a platform than I do. You're going to be active in the community, whether you like it or not. And we made our teams do more than I think the next two teams combined. And so it became part of the culture. You want to play for Brian Burke, we play a certain style, but we also are active in the community. And you can make a city fall in love with a team even before they start winning. We started selling out in Vancouver before we started winning because people saw the players in the community and they saw me and the coach in the community giving back. So the LGBTQ angle is, uh, I had a son, Brendan, and there's a chapter about this in the book. And for people who listen to audio books, you'll be able to tell it was not an easy chapter for me to read onto the audio book. But 
Brennan was a student manager at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, uh, top-ranked hockey team at the time. And uh, he came out very openly and publicly, and then shortly thereafter, he died in a car accident in a blizzard. So we started the, the Burke family, started the You Can Play Project, and we've done a lot of, I think we've made a difference in a lot of young athletes' lives, um, and we've determined to, you know, make sure Brendan's memory lives on, and so far, that's happened. And, and, and your son, Patrick, was, I believe, a big part of the founding of You Can Play. Yeah, I say our family did. Patrick did most of the work and continues to this day to be most active liaising with You Can Play. But uh, I think You Can Play, basically the message is, if you're good enough to play on my team, you can play. So we had NHL players say, if you can shoot, you can shoot. If you can fight, you can fight. If you can score, you can score. If you can play, you can play. You're welcome in this dressing room if you can play. And so I think it's a powerful message. And, of course, we're not just talking to gay male athletes. We're talking to people all over society. If you can play, you're, you're okay on my team. You're, I'm accepting you on my team if you can play. Well, that, that is, you know, given the story, and I encourage people to read the story in the book because it, it is a incredibly moving uh, and human story. W- without question, that is about trying to make something go right after something incredibly and devastatingly wrong. Uh, and and it's all about uh, offering it inc- inclusivity and fairness in the locker room and in any sports space anywhere. It's a it's a remarkable program, um, and and an an important principle in the arena, in the workplace, any setting. It's not just asking for something to go wrong if you ignore it. It's just plain wrong. Period. Yeah, uh, and I, we can't we, so, can't aff- we can't afford to ignore that. No, absolutely. If if there's a message in the book. People ask me why I wrote the book, and I tell them mainly because I want people to enjoy it. You spend 25 bucks for a book, you should at least enjoy it. And so I said my first and most fervent hope is that you enjoy the book and feel it was a good use of your money. But there's some life lessons in there too. Like there, I kept getting fired, never pouted, never just put my head down and said, poor me. I went and found another job and made that work. And then when I got fired from that job, I went and found another job. Lost a kid, the, the worst loss you can – you know, I could have, no one would have thought of how, well, any worse of me if I'd have said, poor me, and put my head down and said, I, I can't live like this. I didn't. I said the kids were putting their heads down and were marching ahead. So there are lessons in the book. Is You know, you're not going to, things aren't going to go your way. I didn't make my high school hockey team until I was in grade 12. I played one year of high school hockey. And then I went, my, my sixth year of organized hockey was playing Division One college hockey for Providence College. So there's a persistence uh, lesson in there. There's a tenacity lesson in there as far as dealing with setbacks. There's a do do good for your neighbor lesson in there. So I think there's some powerful things that people can learn from reading the book, and I hope it influences them. If it changes 10 people's view on inclusivity, then it was worth well worth writing the book. And you can pick up a copy of, of Berkey's book, Burke's Law, on Amazon.com and Amazon.ca or wherever you buy your books. And, friends, I encourage you, if you want to donate to You Can Play Project, it's easy to find that, too. Visit their website at www.youcanplay.org. It's an, it's an incredible organization doing incredible work. Brian Burke, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom, your insights, your experiences with us on when things go wrong. Have a spectacular day. 
Thank you, Frank. You wanted me to say that, right? Yes. Frank always says, have a spectacular day. And I called him Francis, which annoyed him no end. So you're welcome, Francis. Thanks for having it, me. It actually never did annoy me. To me, it was just part of our incredible friendship that's been that's been so long running and and uh, didn't have to withstand a whole lot because we had we had a great deal of fun together. Yes, we did. Yeah. Th- thank you, Berkey. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Learn more about how to plan for and survive the inevitable blips, bloopers, and blunders of life and business in What to Do When Things Go Wrong, available in hard copy, ebook, and audiobook from Amazon.com and other fine booksellers. I'm Frank Sapovitz, and remember, if it hasn't happened to you, it just hasn't happened to you yet. The When Things Go Wrong podcast is produced by Chris and Mandy Wimmer and is a production of Black Barrel Media in association with Fast Traffic Entertainment. You can find more Black Barrel Media shows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. For more background on this show, join us at Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, at B Barrel Media on Twitter, and on our website at blackbarrelmedia.com. See you next time, if all goes well.